Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, protests and chaos in central Auckland. Anti-transgender activist Posey Parker reportedly leaves New Zealand after being confronted by a crowd of counter-protesters and doused with juice. Did police do enough to protect her? And should she have been allowed in in the first place? Then, will National's new education policy be enough to lift New Zealand's lagging achievement? One of the problems that we've got at the moment is a, a, a very, very loose curriculum that doesn't give any guidance to teachers as to what they should be teaching. It's basically finger in the wind deciding what they teach next week or tomorrow. And New Zealand's first ministerial visit to China in more than three years. As New Zealand situates itself in the Pacific and focuses on the resilience of the Pacific in a peaceful and stable, prosperous region. Uh, and that has been made very clear to, to countries like China and others that are interested in our region. We will discuss that shortly, but first, main benefits and superannuation rates will increase this week after the government chose to index rates to inflation instead of the median wage. It comes as the Minister for Social Development celebrates a new report which shows more than 100,000 Kiwis exited benefits for work in the year to June, and that's the highest number in 25 years. Carmel Sepuloni is one of only a handful of government ministers to have held the same portfolio since coming into government in 2017. And clearly she's doing something to please the boss. In January, she was promoted New Zealand's 20th Deputy Prime Minister. Carmel Sepuloni. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. I want to talk about the Posey Parker stuff and a few other things uh, later in this interview, but let's start with social development this sure. morning and those new numbers for the year to June. Why did so many people move from benefits into work? Uh, a few different things. Uh, one was that the economy was going well. Uh, what we've seen also is that the labour market has been tight. Uh, as well as that, we've invested heavily into uh, support for people who are on benefit uh, to get into employment. So those things combined have led to record levels of people leaving benefit to go into employment. You have compared your performance over the COVID period to the global financial shock noting that throughout COVID, your government delivered lower unemployment and fewer people on main benefits than during that period. Is unemployment today higher or lower than when you took office? Unemployment is lower right. than when we took office. So it was 4.8% when you took office. It's now 3.4%. That's correct. Are there more or fewer people today on job seeker benefits than when you took office? There are more people on job seeker benefit, uh, but what we've got is 11.1% of the working age population on benefit. That compares to 12.5% uh, at the same period of time after the GFC. Hang on, I'm not talking about the GFC though, I'm talking about when you took office, because that's the power that you've had right yes. here. So just to be 100% clear, Unemployment today is 1.4% lower than when you took office, but there more are 50,000 50, more people there on are. benefits. Yes. Why? Well, a number of things. You know, we, we have had a, a significant economic uh, event that we have endured. Uh, a number of, of uh, people have ended up on benefit, but we've had more people exit as a result of the investment that we've put in place. Uh, there's lots of work to do, and we're certainly focused on doing that. But given what we've encountered, uh, we've actually done much better than what had been forecast. But there are 50,000 more people on job seeker benefits than, keep in mind, Jack, than when you took over. Treasury, because of the pandemic, was forecasting that we'd get almost 490,000 people on benefit 
at its peak. We never got there because of all the investment that we put in Minister, place. Minister, we're in a historic skill, skill shortage. You just mentioned yes. it a moment ago. Employers everywhere are desperate for workers, and we have 100,000 work-ready people on the job seeker benefit. How is that possible? Well, they may be on the, the job seeker uh, work ready benefit. So they're ready to work? Yes, but not always are they in the right places to be able to work. There's a number of things that uh, can impact their ability to work, including things like transport. You've seen us invest in things like driver's licenses, uh, including things like childcare and being able to access that. That can stop them being able to get into work. Uh, all of these things are barriers, and you need to have an approach which is looking at all of those areas and investing at the same time. But I'm just I mean, I mean that, that is an extraordinary stat, is it not? And incredibly illustrative that unemployment is significantly lower than when you took office and job seeker benefits are significantly higher. They're higher, Jack, but they're nowhere near what had been forecast. And the fact that we've got near record lows mm. of, of unemployment, mm. it really is a testament to the focus of this government and the investments that we've made. Yeah, but we still have very high... Uh, um, relatively, job seeker benefits compared to the unemployment rate, if we're in a historic skill shortage. So where should the job seeker numbers be? Oh, look, you know, I can't say where they should be. Well, if, if we've got 3.4% unemployment, clearly massive skill shortage right across the economy, where, where roughly would an appropriate number be, do you think? Well, like I said, you have to look at the working age population as well, and so there has been a significant increase in the population, say, compared to mm. uh, the time of the GFC. So the proportion of people who are on the benefit is 11.1% of the working age population. Mm. That compares to 12.5% after the GFC. Uh, we're working hard to ensure that all New Zealanders who are on benefit get access mm. to the upskilling and training that they need uh, and also as a government recognise that they have very complex needs. Mm. Every individual needs something different to be able to support them and to work successfully uh, and we've certainly put those programmes and those investments mm. in place. You keep on comparing your performance now to the GFC. And I think I, we I, need to compare it to comparable okay. uh, you know, economic so, so shocks. So what, what was the unemployment rate after the GFC? Oh, it was higher than 3.4%, right. but I certainly don't know what that is. Significantly what, higher. What that was. Significantly higher, well, right? Was higher, I believe yes. during the GFC it peaked above 6% in New Zealand. And we could have been there too, Jack. Right. If we didn't invest in things like the wage subsidy mm. to support businesses to keep their employees, $18 billion worth mm. of wage subsidy, we would have seen much more job losses, we would have seen businesses go under, and so I think we do need to recognise there's a lot that we've done to keep New Zealand steady uh, during a difficult time. I understand, time. but the, th the thing is you have to take both of those numbers in tandem, don't you, to actually get an accurate picture of what's happening in our job market. Yeah, sure, no, yeah. absolutely. And, and yeah. so, so if you are heralding your performance when it comes to people on benefits and people receiving benefits compared to the GFC, you also need to compare the unemployment rate. Yeah. And the truth is right now, we have a near record low unemployment rate, but 50,000 more people receiving job seeker benefits than when you took office. Have you developed a culture of welfare dependency among no. New Zealand's working age population? No, we haven't, Jack. But what we have done is ensured that any New Zealander who is eligible uh, to be supported by the welfare system, that they will get that support, they will be treated with respect. 
uh, they will have access to all mm. of the entitlements. And so that's really important. I actually think it's important that if people are eligible for mm. the benefit, they do get access to it because at the same time as getting access to the benefit, they're going to get access to all the Is work it preferable from the supports work? that they need. Absolutely preferable. Right. And most New Zealanders, including those that are on benefit, want to be able to work. Uh, but as I said, they are individuals well, so, so why who are those, to be working with so, so if they want to work, why are there almost 100,000 job-ready Job seeker benefit. I could right rattle now. through the reasons, and I think I've already rattled a few off. Well, what are know? the main ones? What, what well, are the biggest ones? I mean, clearly, um, where you live, whether you can get to work, whether you've got the childcare that you need, even if you are work ready, there are a number of uh, New Zealanders mm. on benefit who may be work ready that still have uh, some other health challenges, even though uh, they are deemed to be work ready. Mm. Uh, and so there's a lot going on for, for people, and I think we need to recognise that. Treasury expects unemployment to rise to five and a half percent next year what will that mean for benefit numbers look you know we've tried our hardest since we've been in government to fight those forecasted mm. numbers and we've done really well so far but we've known for a while that there is an anticipated downturn uh, clearly that would have an impact on the number of unemployed New Zealanders mm. uh, and then effectively those that are on benefit but we've beaten the odds so far and we're going to continue to focus and make sure that we do our very best to continue to do that. I've got one last question about the number of people receiving benefits and then I'll move on. How many people receiving job seeker benefits have been receiving that benefit for more than a year now? Uh, we've had a reduction of those who come on uh, staying on for extensive period of time. We've been able to move people off into work quickly. So if there are 170,000 New Zealanders receiving the job seeker benefit... And only 97,000 of them are, are work work ready. And so yeah. how many have been on that benefit for more than a year? I don't have the stats to mind at the moment. Would it be Jack. reasonable to expect that more than 100,000 people have received the job seeker benefit for more than a year? Not job seeker work ready, Jack, because there's only the 90, job seeker benefit. 97,000 that are that. work ready. The job ready. seeker benefit though. 170 received well, you, the benefit. Well, let's keep it in perspective here. Sorry, yeah. no, let's, let's go back to that question. If yeah. 170,000 have received the job seeker benefit for more than a year, 98,000 are work-ready job seeker benefit recipients. My question is, of the 170,000, mm. is it reasonable to expect that more than 100,000 have been receiving that benefit for more than 12 months? Well, given that a large number of those that are on job seeker benefit have health conditions or disabilities, mm. then that does happen at times, Jack. And so we have to recognise that a large number of people who are getting that benefit actually have health conditions or disabilities, and that will uh, mean that there's a challenge for them to be able to get into work. Benefits go up this week in line with inflation, and yep. you said this, quote, I know every little bit counts when making ends meet in a cost of living crisis. We can't leave those on the lowest incomes and government support behind. Yeah. So why didn't that apply with the cost of living payment? In terms of? Well, beneficiaries didn't receive the cost of living payment. Well, we had increased benefits. It was all other New Zealanders. But every that little hadn't... bit counts when making ends meet. In a cost of living crisis, we can't leave those on the lowest incomes behind. Superannuitants didn't receive they the had cost received, of living payment. They had received, so benefits had gone up. Uh, things obviously are adjusted on the 1st of April, uh, depending on CPI mm. and increases to wages. But there was a core group of New Zealanders that didn't receive any additional support during the year. Mm. Uh, with any policy, you have to make decisions around where the parameters are, and the mm. decision for that particular payment was, was not made to give it to the poorest for New Zealanders. That particular group of New Zealanders at that time. So, 
If we look at the increases this week, a solo parent on JobSeeker will see their support raise about $32 a week. A family on JobSeeker will see an increase of $41 a week. Considering those adjusted rates, are benefits enough for all New Zealanders to live with dignity? Oh, look, no one would ever uh, try and say that living on a benefit is easy, uh, Jack. Is it enough? for all New Zealanders to live with dignity? Uh, certainly not all. It would depend on your circumstances, where you are living, what your overheads are, whether or not you have debt, how much you pay for rent. Why not? So I've asked you this question about five times over the last five or six years and the time you've been in this portfolio. Yeah. You've had a majority government. You've promised as part of your manifesto to introduce a welfare system that treats New Zealanders with dignity, that provides them with adequate income. Those are the words on page 14 of your manifesto from the yes. 2020 election. Why not? Well, we did put $2.8 billion into, into raising benefit levels. But is it Jack? enough for New Zealanders to live with dignity? It is certainly um, a massive step in the right direction. We reversed those 1991 benefit cuts. it's a very simple cuts. question. I, I'm not asking about the 1991 cuts. I'm asking if you have fulfilled your promise with a majority government in a portfolio that you've been in for five the, and a half years. The welfare years. overhaul is ongoing, and so we continue to do the work, and we don't take our eye off mm. that. The thing is, and you know this as well as I do, there is only so much resourcing to go around. And as a government, we have to make decisions. I will say this, that education is just as important mm. to beneficiaries. Having a good health system is important to beneficiaries. Mm. Having enough housing is, is important to beneficiaries. So we have to look broadly across... Giving the, the cost of living payment to dead people was apparently as important. Jack, you, I, I'm talking But it is about, a question of priorities, isn't it? it and, is, and this is something that you have promised... You've had a majority government. You've been in this portfolio for. I'm, I'm proud since of what we've achieved. We've made some significant changes. Mm. We've got rid of some discriminatory policies. We've put more money into the pockets of beneficiaries. We've invested in our support for them to be able to get into work upskilling and training. Right. And we've changed the culture of the organisation so it treats people with respect. When I came into office, that wasn't the case. Would higher benefit levels stop more people from moving into work? Um, you know, that's, for me, I, I start from the, the kind of base or premise that every New Zealander, or most New Zealanders, actually want to work. We all and agree so, with that, but answer the question. Would, uh, would higher benefit no. levels... Would higher benefit levels stop more people from moving into work? I would never view that as a deterrent to people getting into work. Uh, but again, most New Zealanders want to work. It's not as easy as saying mm. for some go take that job up. It doesn't work like that. Party manifesto, once again, you promised to, quote, work towards implementing the recommendations of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group. That report was published more than four years ago now, 42 recommendations. How many of those 42 have been fully implemented by your government? OK, so I've said this on a number of occasions. It's not a checklist, it is a roadmap. If I refer to a few of them, just to give an example of why it's a bit complex... Well, just answer regards... that question first of all. How many have been fully implemented? Well, I think it's recommendation 20 is the one around income mm. where they lay out how much we should increase benefits so by... fully and, implemented. And they, so they lay out how, we should, how much we should increase benefits by and they also lay out the abatement threshold shift. We lifted it beyond what they recommended and we did lift benefits, taking on board their mm. advice. We actually it's went still beyond, not at the levels. We actually went beyond the board. what they said for those that have children. And so mm. in some so, ways, so of the forty two, sorry again, of the forty two, how many have been fully implemented? So many of them are ongoing. You look at uh, that doesn't answer the no, question. No, I'm gonna ask be, one more time. Yeah. Of the forty two, how many have been fully implemented? Well 
again, so many of them are ongoing. There, there's a recommendation on the, in there about increasing public housing, and we've been doing that, but it, it's not finished, Jack. We've got to continue to do that work. Professor Emeritus Innes Asher, who was on that Welfare Expert Advisory Group, said that your progress has been, quote, woefully slow. Fear of Futures study from last year showed 12 out of 13 families in New Zealand on income support didn't receive enough income to cover their costs. Are you advocating to raise main benefits again this term? Oh, certainly not going to commit to something like that. I'm Are you advocating for it, though? I'm certainly not going to commit to something like that. I know you won't like commit that. to it. Are you advocating for it? I'm certainly not going to commit to something like that because if I was to state that, then it's almost like I'm saying it's on the table. I'm not going to say it's on or off the so table. So the yet. child poverty stats were out this week. 118,000 kids in New Zealand are in material hardship. One in five Māori children, one in four Pacifica children experience material hardship. As someone who has experienced life parenting on a benefit, would higher benefits help to lift more children out of poverty? It's not just higher benefits, Jack. Would they, though? That assists, but also things like what we've invested in with food and schools, free period mm. products, cheaper housing or more public housing, all of those things help to lift people out of poverty. So all of those actions mm. are important. It's not just about lifting benefits. Do you think Jacinda Ardern achieved her aspiration when it came to child poverty? Well, we've got 77,000 uh, 77, fewer children mm. on, uh, in poverty based on the AHC measure. And 118,000 kids in material hardship still today, almost six years after you came into government. Yeah. So, 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 so just to be clear, did Jacinda Ardern achieve her aspiration on that front? Yeah, you know what? I will say that she's enshrined it in legislation. Mm. She now has government's who will be held to account for reducing child poverty. Mm. Um, she's made it a priority. Uh, we see so, fewer so did she achieve children... it? Well, it's not finished, but she certainly started mm. us on that journey of prioritising reducing the numbers of children living in poverty. And I think um, that that was admirable. And what she did was aspirational, and I think it's mm. going to be really important for New Zealand moving forward. OK. Stay with us. Carmel Cipolloni is back after the break. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Anti-trans activist Posey Parker has reportedly left the country early after chaotic scenes yesterday in Auckland. The British Speaker's planned appearance at the Albert Park Rotunda was disrupted by thousands of counter-protesters, including one who doused her with a bottle of tomato juice. After her speech was cut short, a few clashes spilled out around central Auckland and, of course, Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson was knocked over by a motorcyclist. The organisers of Parker's tour pulled the plug on today's planned event in Wellington, saying it wouldn't be possible to provide adequate security. Carmel Cipolloni is back with us. Your government could have avoided that. Well, there's a very high bar for, from blocking someone coming into the country. Um, and, you know, Minister Michael Wood made very clear his views, uh, but clearly didn't, the, the bar was not high enough to intervene. Did you go to the protest? No, I didn't go to the protest. Why was that? Well, I was at a charity event in West Auckland for, for uh, weather-related events that was run by Māori Television and Whānau Order uh, yesterday. But also, uh, I respect people's rights to be able to go out and counter-protest, and I absolutely respect the kaupapa for why they are protesting. Uh, in my mind, that woman and her views are abhorrent and actually in some ways quite ridiculous. Uh, but I guess my personal approach is just to go like this. Mm. So, so if you hadn't had another appointment yesterday, 
you would have chosen not to attend that protest? Yeah, I wouldn't have gone. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't support those that are there. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I don't support the kaupapa and what they're yeah. standing for. I'm absolutely alongside them on that. But we've got different ways in which we voice our views. And yeah. mine would not have been to go to the protest. Yeah, just explain to me a bit more why, why you wouldn't have gone. Um, to me, she is nothing. Uh, I think most New Zealanders have much more common sense than that woman has. Mm. Uh, we are much more inclusive uh, than that woman is. Uh, and for me personally, I just don't want to support her. I don't want to say her name. I don't want to give her a platform mm. um, because I think that we're much more progressive and we've moved beyond those kinds of views, mm. um, mostly in this country, and so, yeah, that's just my personal view. Do, do you think it was a mistake for people who oppose Posey Parker to turn out as they did? A, no. As you say, there's far no. more attention on the subject than there was. I don't think it was a mistake at all. But I mean, you, you again, wouldn't have done it, yeah. My personal thing is I wouldn't have done it, but yeah. I don't think it's a mistake for them do, to have done that. Do you think, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, um, given that public order threshold that was considered. Yeah. The scenes yesterday, we've had an MP who's been knocked over by a motorcyclist. A few scuffles. We saw Posey Parker mm. um, doused with yeah. juice. Yeah. Do you think that upon reflection, having seen it all play out, that it did reach that threshold? Um, look, certainly Upsetting don't support any of um, the types of actions that we did see, mm. uh, the tomato juice pouring and knocking Marama over with a motorcycle. Yeah. I think from what I saw, though, most people that were there were really civil. They were there to uh, protest peacefully. Mm. Uh, and so there's always a few uh, that don't stick to those rules, and we certainly have seen that. Yeah, so that, not quite to the question, though. Does that reach the threshold for upsetting public order? If we'd known that yesterday was going to happen, mm. would we have louder in the country? Oh, look, I'm not the immigration minister. I know, but what's I your know. You are the most senior woman in the New Zealand government. I didn't receive any of the advice that went to the immigration minister. But I'm sure you've been following that, the story. That gave insights into risks and what may happen and everything else. Do you so, accept that uh, her appearance upset the public order? Oh, look, certainly. Lots of people mm. were upset by that. Mm. And then there'd be the small group of New Zealanders who might be upset if she wasn't allowed into the country. Uh, I think both ways, whichever decision was made, it would have been legally challenged. Mm. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's ultimately the, 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 the Minister for Immigration mm. and his officials that are responsible for making that call. You are the Associate Minister for Foreign Affairs. You recently attended the Pacific Islands Forum. Samoan Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Matafa raised the idea of freedom of movement mm. across the Pacific. Would you support that? It's not something that we've had a discussion about, Jack. Um, certainly not something that's on the table at mm. this point in time. Uh, what I will say is I'm acutely aware of what happened with for Newair and the Cook Islands when we changed arrangements and had free flow of people moving uh, between countries. What and happened? I'm a depopulation uh, for the Cook Islands and Newair. They lost a lot of their potential labour force. We gained it. Kind of a paternalistic approach, don't you think? What, in terms of to us, say that we shouldn't support we shouldn't support freedom of movement across the Pacific oh, no. if other Pacific countries supported it because they would be depopulated. No, it's not paternalistic at all. It's I'm reflecting on what we've seen previously, mm. uh, and and it has meant that they lost a lot of their people resource mm. uh, over the years because of the fact that we changed settings. Now 
the decision around the um, issue that you said the Prime Minister for Samoa has raised isn't on the table, it hasn't been discussed, it's not an active agenda item, but I'm reflecting on what we've seen with other No, countries. but she's raised it, right? She, so she was reported as saying that when she raised it with you, uh, that you responded, quote, oh, but all other people in the islands will want to come and live in New Zealand and Australia. Well, I'm thinking, I'm, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I do know Is that, that your I, position? I talked about depopulation mm. and the impact that it could have on those countries. I mean, keep in mind that um, great respect to the Prime Minister for Samoa, but she's also uh, reviewing the REC scheme at the moment yeah. um, because of the fact that they are aware they've lost some of their own labour force mm. to New Zealand and Australia who have taken it up, and they're concerned that they don't have the people they need to be working there. And so, you know, we have to discuss and think about these things very but, carefully. But, but if, if, if Pacific Island nations were to support freedom of movement... Would you support that? That's a discussion. As a, as that a Pacifica was... woman, would you support that? Oh, look, I'm not going to preempt any discussions. That I'm not asking even... you to preempt. This is the thing now. You are the deputy no, prime minister, would... so I'm asking for a principled position. Then I would be preempting any discussions that haven't even been had yet. It's not about discussions. So... It's about your position. No, because it's about I don't principles. make decisions for my political party by myself. No, but you are a political leader, and you are the deputy prime minister. And of this what country. we do in political parties is we have discussions amongst ourselves. We weigh up the pros and cons. Mm. I haven't even had time to think this through properly and I haven't had any discussions with colleagues about this, Jack. From your conversations at the forum, is there an expectation from our Pacific partners that New Zealand should take a stronger security position in the Pacific? Um, there was no uh, inference that the presence that we currently have is not enough. Right. It was certainly, there was no inference from any Pacific country that what we're doing is not enough. But should our approach change? I guess we're not asking if we should have a bigger, a, a bigger influence in the Pacific, but it's more if the nature of our influence should change and perhaps take more of a security-minded focus? That wasn't one of the areas that we discussed, mm. to be honest. It was more things like labour mobility mm. uh, and the REC scheme and what's happening there. Uh, climate change was discussed, mm. uh, a number of different areas, but that wasn't one that was up okay. for discussion at that particular meeting. We're almost out of time, but you have talked um, a bit this morning about the ways in which change takes time. Yeah. And, and I suppose... When you reflect on that language, some people might interpret it as a move away from the language of aspiration. I mean, you've had a front row seat, as I said at the start of this interview, you are one of the few cabinet ministers to have held their portfolios since 2017. When you reflect on the last five and a half years in government, the change in prime ministers, what have you learned about creating change? Oh, that it's not easy uh, with regards to government agencies and the complexity of that. But, oh, Jack, we are aspirational. The fact that we have over 50,000 people on apprenticeship boost, that we've reinstated the training incentive allowance so that sole mothers can study, that we introduce programs like Manu and Mahi and Hepotamarangatahi to help our young people to be able mm. to get the training they need to get into employment. All of those things signal how focused we are on employment and ensuring that New Zealanders get access to the employment opportunities that are there. And so we are absolutely aspirational. Mm. Deputy Prime Minister, Carmel Sipoloni, tēnā koe. Thank you for your time. Kia If you want to contact Q&A, please, kōrero or mai. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, reading, writing, maths. National wants Kiwi kids doing an hour a day of each subject. But is it the right approach for lifting New Zealanders' lagging standards?
Hokimai, welcome back. National has released the first of its education policies for this year's election, promising to commit primary school students to an hour of maths and two hours of reading and writing every school day. The party has set an explicit target of a top 10 piece of ranking for maths, reading and science within a decade. The National Party Education Spokesperson Erica Stanford is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning. We will talk this policy in just a moment, but given your shadow immigration portfolio, I just want to ask, was it the right decision, do you think, to allow Posey Parker in New Zealand? Look, from my perspective, the broader question actually is, what should Michael Wood have done? Because he's tried to have a bob both ways. You saw in the media he said, well... I wouldn't have let her in, and I think it's terrible. But actually, it never, it never met the threshold for me to make a decision. Mm. That is complete rubbish. If he'd rung his officials and said, can I make this decision, they would have said, yes, Minister. It mm. would have been a phone call. He would have got the file on his desk, and he could have made a decision. He's trying to have a bob both ways by saying, well, officials make the decision because it wasn't, didn't meet the threshold. Right. If I were the Minister, I would have asked for that file on my desk, I would have taken a look at it and I would have made a decision. Now, the next question you're going to ask me is, well, what decision would you have made? But the point is, I never saw the file. But I would have made the file and I would have made the decision. I would have tried, wouldn't have tried to sort of weasel out of it. OK, let me ask about the scenes then yesterday. In your opinion, does that meet the threshold for disrupting public order that would have allowed a Minister of Immigration to have denied Posey Parker entrance? Well, again, I haven't seen the file. But you've, seen, it, you know, the, you've 20, seen the look, scenes, 20, 20, 20 I know, vision. I get but, it. But look, you, you know, the Minister said earlier that the bar is very high. Uh, and I actually, when I looked at the uh, legislation mm. initially, I thought the bar was quite high too. But I've taken a second look at the legislation. The bar is actually quite low. It just says, you know, reasonable grounds to believe. Right. If the Minister had seen the file, and, got, and he should have said, have the police gone to talk to all of these different groups and got a good, really good understanding okay. of what might have happened? I don't think he did that, and he should have. OK. What would you have done? Having seen the scenes yesterday, having seen the scenes yesterday, did it meet that threshold? I would have made the call to make this decision myself, and I would have looked at the file, and I would have made a call myself. Did it reach the threshold yesterday? Well, 2020 vision. I know, but did it reach the threshold? Well, I think if the, if the police and the minister had gone, and the minister had checked that the police had yeah. gone and talked to all of those groups, they may well have got a very good indication that yesterday was going to happen. It's it's all very well. And with if yesterday was vision, going to happen. If they, they had a good indication that yesterday was going to happen, in your opinion, should they have denied Posey Parker entrance? Look, it's, it, like I say, 2020 vision. I, it's, I know, yeah. but come on, you, you, were, you were auditioning for this role. And, and so you've and seen the scene yesterday, you're I familiar with the legislation. I would have made the decision, I would have asked for the file, <laughs> and I wouldn't have weaseled out of it and had a bob both ways. OK, I'm not going to answer that. Decision. Did you go yesterday? No, I was, uh, I, I was at the first uh, Tongan language kindergarten opening yesterday, which was Lovely. a great would, would occasion. Would you have gone? Uh, no, I don't think so. I wouldn't have wanted to give her any more airtime than she deserved. And I think this is where this all leads to, yeah. is the fact that the Greens started this all off by putting it out there in the media. If you know, if she'd come in under the radar, a few people would have turned up. No one would have even known she was here and she would have gone and we would have carried on our tolerant, normal ways as we do in New Zealand. Education. In yes. your opinion, why have New Zealand student standards been slipping? Look, there's a range of, of reasons for that, but we were very clear in our policy. One of the, a few of the, the very important things to get right are ensuring that all children have access to core curriculum knowledge at each year level, that we don't leave it to chance like mm. we're doing now, that we make sure that kids are progressing through the curriculum, that we're reporting that progress to parents, and that we're also supporting the workforce through really great PLD and a professional learning development and also mm. in their teacher education to make sure that they have the skills to deliver the content. Do teachers bear any responsibility? I've said many times, the system has let teachers down. Right. They've been let down by what I believe is very poor initial teacher education, uh, very unfocused professional learning and development when it comes to the core 
uh, content of, of literacy, numeracy, science, mm. and how to do assessments. Uh, you know, I've talked to so many teachers who say to me, I don't feel supported by the curriculum. Yeah. I don't feel supported by great professional learning and development. So you've pointed to the NTEA pilot for literacy and numeracy standards in which two-thirds of students failed to reach minimum OECD standards for success. Now, those are the same students, are they not, who were in primary school when the National Party's national standards policy was in place? We've been declining our standards is that, for is that, years. Is that right, though? Part of them have been, right. yes. But here, look, here's the thing, Jack. So, so the two-thirds of students who failed to... No, 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 OK. Question. We've been declining in our standards for 30 years. Right. We've not had national standards for the last six years. Nothing has changed. You know, we can look but, back at each individual government and some of the things that they've done and critique. Well, it is about credibility when it comes to your policy to consider the previous policies of the well, National it's great Party. Because isn't it's it? not national standards. Oh, okay, well, you can so, explain that the distinction yeah. in just a moment. But I mean, that is a really important acknowledgement, is it not? That two thirds of the students who failed to reach those basic standards under the OECD were the students who were educated under your party's policy. And nothing has changed since, since uh, national standards. You accept that, though. I accept, accept that multiple governments over many decades have made uh, decisions that have meant that over 30 mm. years we've seen a steady decline. Did national standards mean that there was more of a decline? Absolutely not. In the last six years, the Minister Janetetti right. in the House admitted last week that since, uh, since her government have come in, standards have not shifted at all, and that's right. a great tragedy. But what you're saying is they haven't shifted under this government, but they didn't shift under your government either. Oh. You accept that? I accept that over okay. multiple governments, our, de our decline has been uh, evident over the last 30 years. So, so obviously a new part of your, uh, of your education policy includes a testing requirement. Now, yes. Christopher Luxon said this this week, quote, we're not talking about standardised testing, we're talking about standardised progression assessment. Now, to some people, that will sound like a wiffle-waffle term, so spell it out. What is the difference between standardised testing and standardised progression assessment? Sure. I think the thing that... And I was trying to explain this to my husband last night because, you know, to, to make sure that he understood it. You can do a point-in-time test, which is what... Or assessment or judgment, which is what we did under national standards. Mm. At this point, did you meet the standard? Did you pass, fail, or were you at... What's much more important in the future of assessment is mm. assessing how kids are progressing. Because, actually, some of those kids might have been below... But guess what? In the last year, they made a year and a half's worth of progress. It's about measuring progress so that you know that your child is making progress through the curriculum. And similarly, if they were a year ahead of curriculum right. and then suddenly they're at curriculum, what happened? Okay. It's about measuring progress, and that is the key difference. So, so under, under the old national standards system, you did a point-in-time test, which was essentially a pass-or-fail test. Mm. Now, if you were to take a same student, say it's a year six student, you do a test under the National Party's policy and you get a result that says, oh, they're achieving at a level four level. I mean, isn't that essentially just saying they've failed as well? well how how is that any different? Well, there's two points to this. Firstly, you'd know how much progression they'd made in the last year, mm. because under our government, I want to know that every child has made a year's progression for a year's worth of learning. Secondly, yes, of course it does. And you know what? We should be saying your child is at the top of level four when they're at level six. Mm. That's what parents want to know. And I tell you what, Jack, that's why this policy has been so overwhelmingly supported by parents. Because parents want to know where their mm. kids are at. They but, want to know if there's been progression, but they also want to know if they're behind but it's a, so it's that they pretty, know how to catch them up. It's a pretty minimal distinction, is it not? To, not to have all. gone from national standards where it's like, OK, you pass or fail, you pass or fail, you pass or fail in each test, and to go to a new testing regime where it's, OK, you haven't achieved level six, but you've achieved level four. OK, you haven't achieved level six, but you've achieved level four and a half. OK, you haven't achieved level seven, but you've achieved level five. But 
You've got That's essentially the same thing. It's just a different packaging also, of the parcel file. Not, not really at all, actually. It's much more rich in detail, but also remember under national standards, it wasn't a test. Mm. It was teacher judgment. And that was a, a big problem, and I admit that with, with national standards, was that it was a huge imposition on teachers mm. uh, that we didn't give any PLD to around it, by the way, either. I, I think that was a mistake. But the new, but, the so new what, system no, will still finish, require Jack, really teacher judgment, though, it's right? Really important. It's really important to acknowledge that under the old system, it was teacher judgment based mm. on a point in time. This is measuring progress over time, mm. and it is an assessment tool, that, which is the, and I know this is a jargon, but it's the ASTL tool that was developed in New Zealand, yep. world-leading, that tells you whether or not your child is progressing. But if, if a child does poorly in one of these tests, mm. there is still the capacity for a teacher to look at their overall development, is there not? Well, the is, there is still an allowance yeah. for, for teacher judgment under your policy. Well, here's the thing, because you misunderstood when you said, you know, if a child does badly in the test. If, if a child policy, doesn't achieve to the... to the. OK, because if you read the policy, you would have seen that the, that the test is pitched at the, at the child's ability levels. Yes. Right? So that's really important. So that's still requiring Peter ju teacher judgment? Oh, look, a little bit, but the great thing about ASTL is that mm. it feeds back to the teacher. If the child did... Uh, really well, you've pitched the test too yeah. low, you need to do it again. So that's why it's so world-leading. So how does a standardised approach to testing allow for the diversity of students in classrooms today? Well, as I just mentioned, the, you know, the teachers have the ability to pitch the test right. at the ability level of, of the student in front of them. Uh, ASTL is an incredible tool mm. because it allows you to set parameters. You can set the length of the test, the type of the question, uh, where the children are at, which which uh, area of the top of the curriculum. But the you're problem going to with do. the standardised testing is that you have standardised teaching, right? And and this is the concern. So I understand that under ASTL you can adjust mm. the test relative to students, but the problem is whether or not teachers can adjust their teaching when they are essentially teaching to what is quite a prescriptive curriculum, which is part of so your. So what what we have now is exactly the opposite. You think about the counterfactual, right? Mm. At the moment, we have an, a, a loose curriculum mm. uh, that doesn't give you any guidance on what to teach and when, and that's really important for those kids who are falling behind, and that's, mm. I think that's where you're getting to, because you've got children at different, at different ability I'm levels. I'm talking about, right? say, like, say, you... say neurodiverse kids. Like, we, we have 20%, by some estimates, 20% of New Zealand students uh, you know, yes. ha have, have dyslexia or some other neurodiversity. So I'm wondering how they will be affected when you have a much more prescripted uh, prescriptive curriculum and standardised testing that goes alongside that. I mean, I mean, these kids aren't standard. That's the whole thing. Oh, look, absolutely. But firstly, I'd make the point that children of neuro, uh, parents of neurodiverse children, want to know how their kids are progressing. Mm. Really important. And the one thing you often hear is, children, uh, parents of dyslexic children, say. I didn't find out until they were at year six that mm. they were dyslexic because I kept being, kept being told they were within the curriculum guidelines, within these broad three-year mm. bands, but, and, and they, or they were just a boy and they'll catch up, and then they never did, and by the time they were at year six, it was mm. too late. A more prescribed curriculum will allow you to pick these things up much earlier, and so parents don't get these excuses which they keep getting. Oh, don't worry, they'll catch up. Don't worry, it's okay, they're within a band. But I think if a it lot works. of parents of neurodiverse kids know that their kids have neurodiversity or, or, or dyslexia. It's not, it's not a surprise to them necessarily. It's, it's more the concern over whether they actually have the support in classes to allow them to learn and alongside a, kids who are following that standardised is a very approach. Different, and that is a very different thing that we're mm. talking about. And we're going to have more to say on that in the future. But I can tell you this, that a structured approach to learning, mm. especially when it comes to our dyslexic and, and neurodiverse kids, is actually a much better way to go mm. than a broad, loose curriculum that doesn't give you any guidance. We know that a structured approach works for them. Testing is one part, the curriculum is another, and yep. obviously the government has been refreshing the current curriculum and current common practice model. 
Um, I've, I've spoken to a few teachers this week and, and the feedback that I've received is that Kiwi teachers are in this moment absolutely exhausted. Mm. They have got to the other side of COVID. They face a cost of living crisis. They are the front line for all sorts of social problems yes. and economic problems in our society. Mm. How are you not just adding to an already depleted workforce's workload? I think that both governments have admitted and acknowledged that there's a very big problem with the curriculum and it's been uh, in place for, for you know 20 years. Mm. Uh, we have to do something about mm. it. Uh, and you'll have a, a clear distinction between Nationals' approach and Labor's approach at this election. Uh, look, I am the first to acknowledge that teachers have huge workloads and they're dealing with lots of complex issues with their children. One of the things that we've been very clear on in this policy is that we acknowledge they've been let down. They've got a loose curriculum that doesn't give them any guidance. I want to give them that guidance so that they get some of their weekends and time back so they're not creating right. individually across New Zealand It comes down to curriculum. resourcing, though, doesn't it? Well, I yeah. mean, and, and, and I've gone through that document, I've gone through the policy, and, and there is very limited detail on resourcing. Would a national government put meaningful funding into more teacher aids? One of the, start with your criticism of the policy about the resourcing. If you firstly take a look at the professional development that mm. we're going to redirect into those core subjects and a resource bank of world leading resources and, mm. and New Zealand uh, leading resources so that teachers get their time back. So they're not spending the hours that every week, A, creating a curriculum I mean, and then B, looking for resources. The moment, uh, for they're all the over the place and I tell you what, the one thing that, that, that teachers tell me is they spend hours every week searching for things. And the problem with professional is, development is that you have schools that are already understaffed as it is, you have classrooms that are chock-a-block, mm. it's very hard for teachers to take a couple of days off and go and study. Yeah, look, and what, well, let me answer the second part of your question mm. where you said you know, about resourcing. One of the important things about the assessment, the framework mm. of assessment that we're going to do, uh, means that I'm going to have data and mm. knowledge of what's actually happening in the sector. And I can tell you, mm. as a Minister of Education, if I had data that told me that half of our kids by the end of year eight weren't at curriculum, mm. would it mean that I would spend $20 million on restructuring the Ministry of Education $22 million on 22 advisors, $100,000 on a website that they're not using okay. anymore. It would if, focus if you were the Minister putting of Education. the background... Hang on a minute. It would make sure, because this is really important. I understand. You're saying the focus. We have $5 billion extra we've spent. We're, we're, we're running out of time. We're running out of time. How much would this cost? Which part? The, the whole policy. Well, we've said $10 million to make sure that teachers don't have for to fees, pay their fees. Sure, but how much for the rest of it? The reset of the curriculum, all that stuff. How much is that going to cost? Well, there's already... Uh, budget set aside for a curriculum refresh that we would repurpose. We already spend $129 million a year on professional development that we would redirect into literacy, numeracy, science uh, and uh, uh, assessment uh, literacy. So no so extra funding is no being put funding in. No extra funding because there is plenty of money. But aside from $5 the $10 million, million dollars, extra, sure, aside from the $10 million for t teacher registration fees, there's no extra money we're going, going to re this. We're going to use what's already in mm. baseline and redirect that backline waste and put it into meeting frontline need. Okay. Uh, the industrial dispute, before we let you go. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yes. How much should teachers be paid? Well, we've committed. Yeah. We've, the National Party have committed. To every single pay round, we will improve teacher pay. But it's not just about pay. It's about conditions. And they've said that themselves, mm. which is why in this policy, I've been very careful to make sure that we are reducing teacher workload. And, we're all, and policies you will see in the future from sure. us are around... The, those exact things. You've also said that you're not increasing funding through it. You're going to repurpose funding. I understand that. that. I just think it's really, really important that we have a position from the National Party right now on the ongoing industrial dispute for both secondary and primary school teachers. 
how much more should they be paid? I get it, conditions are part of it, how much more should they Jack, be paid? I am not going to insert myself into the middle well, hang of on. A, you could a, a negotiation. The, you could be the education minister. I am not going to insert myself into the middle of a negotiation. These are questions for the minister. She's in the middle of You this. want to be the minister. I've already said that every year we will make sure that we, uh, or every pay round, we're increasing their pay, and I know that Nicola is very, mm. Nicola Willis is very, very focused on mm. making sure we bring down the cost of living so that, you know, that the robber in your pocket of inflation sure. is not eating away at uh, your wages. Shouldn't and so you have a position on this? If you want to be the Minister I'm for Education? I'm not going to insert myself right now. It would be very unhelpful in the middle of negotiations. All right. Hey, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. National Party Education Spokesperson, Erica Stanford. After the break on Q&A, as Australia signs the AUKUS deal and President Xi and Putin meet in Russia, New Zealand's foreign minister heads to China. Kia ora, welcome back. Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta is on her way home after the first visit by a New Zealand foreign minister to China since 2018. Her visit this week coincided with China President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow. Associate Professor Nicholas Ku is a China foreign policy researcher at Otago University. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. From what we know about the trip so far, how did it go? When this was to be expected. Uh, this is a very important relationship for New Zealand, and it's important that we get this exactly right. So it struck me that Foreign Minister Mahuta got the basics right, advanced New Zealand's interests, stated them very clearly, had the nice balance between interests and values. So I think we came out on, ahead on this, and uh, if you look at the statements put out by the Chinese side, They've also said that they want to move the relationship to a new level, which mm. is good news for everyone. Yeah, talk, talk to us about that a little bit more. H how did you interpret the Chinese response to Minister Mahuti's visit? Well, I interpret it in the sense of uh, they are interested in a stronger economic relationship. Now, that's great news for us. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to take a broader perspective mm. because um, New Zealand's foreign policy, it's not just about China. It's also very much about our relationship with Australia, our treaty alliance partner. At the same time, we also have a very strong relationship with the United States. So this important triad of relationships mm -hmm. really anchors New Zealand's foreign policy. And it's very important that while we improve our relations with China, and that's great, at the same time, we've got to be very careful. We have a very strong alliance relationship with the Australians, and at the same time, very strong relationship with the United States. Right. Let me ask about that then, and this might seem like a silly question, but is it a good idea for New Zealand to further improve its economic relationship with China right now? Exactly. Uh, there's no particular tension between having a good relationship with China and improving our relations with our traditional alliance partners. Mm. Because you, we can have an even bigger part of the pie, and that's great. You know, improving the pie is always great. Right? Expand the trade pie. And that's a good thing. At the same time, we've always got to be aware that international relations is as much about politics mm -hmm. as it is about economics. Right? They interact in very complex ways. So we always need to keep a very close eye on not just mm. the China part of things, uh, which has received a lot of attention mm. uh, and deservedly so, but also the traditional alliance partners and, and partnerships that we have. But is there not a risk of a major flashpoint sometime in the future, especially, especially if we strengthen our economic links with China? Is there not a risk that we will find ourselves having to choose between our traditional allies, Australia and the United States, and our economic relationship with China? Well, what I would say is that there's a risk in doing anything in life, including foreign policy. 
and we need to face the world as it is, mm. right? So at this point in time, um, nobody's predicting that there's gonna be a major conflict, right, in the short run. But at, at the same time, there are tensions, which are well-documented mm. over Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea. But we need to live in the present, mm. and there's no reason why we can't actually focus on this set of relationships that are absolutely core to New Zealand's foreign policy. Mm. I mean, you say there's, there's no risk at the moment of anything significant, but let me just throw a hypothetical sure. situation at you. I mean, the, the US intelligence agencies reported earlier this year that China was considering providing arms to Russia sure. for the war in Ukraine. What would New Zealand do if it found itself in a position whereby you have essentially a proxy war between one of our longest and oldest friends, the United yeah. States, and our biggest trading partner, China. Sure, that, that is tricky. Uh, my assessment is, and this, we'll see what happens. My mm -hmm. assessment is that the Chinese look at this situation and they themselves do not want to get entangled in a tricky situation mm -hmm. with the Americans. So my sense is that they will definitely not be doing this, mm -hmm. right? Now, mm -hmm. we will see whether this plays out. But if you look at it from the Chinese side, this is a very precarious situation that they need to exercise a lot of wisdom and judgment on, right? A, a range of former politicians, uh, Jim Bolger, yeah. uh, Helen Clark, former New Zealand prime ministers, former Australian prime minister, Paul Keating, have raised concerns about the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal between the US, UK and Australia. Do you think that their concerns about AUKUS are shared by the New Zealand government? Well, let, let's put it this way. Uh, the New Zealand government is fundamentally interested in stability in the region, okay? And my assessment is that AUKUS, in the round, contributes to stability in the region. Now, let's step back a little bit. Why did AUKUS come about? It came about fundamentally because a policy by the Chinese government to pressurize Australia. And this sanctions policy has lasted from 2020 all the way mm. through to the present day. Now. Australia cannot be expected not to respond. And this is what's happened. They've responded, they've taken on board their national security considerations and acted accordingly. So in many respects, if you take a broader view, mm. uh, AUKUS is not to be seen in isolation. It's part of a larger strategic mm. situation in the region, which is becoming more and more complex. Mm. And a lot of the, the focus should actually be on why Australia felt its security was so affected that it had to actually respond in this way. So we need, we need to keep that in mind at all times. Let's look at the big picture. Sure. Uh, China's President Xi visited Moscow this week. So on one hand, we've heard that China is pulling closer to Russia. Sure. But on the other hand, we've also heard that China wants to help broker a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. So how would you assess that visit? I would assess this visit as highlighting the fact that there is actually a massive tension in Chinese foreign policy mm. between its interest in values such as sovereignty in the international system and its interest, on the other hand, in a good relationship with Ukraine. So, you know, the more you dig down and look at Chinese foreign policy, uh, they face a lot of challenges. It really is a serious uh, problem for them. So the, whichever decision they make, uh, they'll find themselves facing a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm the Ukraine war peace plan that has been proposed sure. by China. Is it fair to say that that is a plan that would benefit Russia more than Ukraine? Well, peace benefits everyone, mm. fundamentally, right? Uh, but again, the, the peace plan, if you look at it closely, uh, suggests 
issues that China is struggling with. Num point number one on the peace plan deals with the issue of sovereignty. Ukraine's sovereignty has been violated, right? And what is the Chinese response? You could argue that they're not actually holding up to, the, to their sense of what their values are, right? Mm -hmm. They're placing their interests above their values. This may not be, be a big surprise, but it should alert us to the fact that uh, there's a lot more going on than, uh, than what might appear at first hand. China was also involved in brokering a diplomatic breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are, of exactly. course, traditional bitter, bitter opponents. Should we care that the United States is raising the alarm about that deal and a potential Ukraine-Russia ceasefire? Well, let's put it this way, Jack. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised if the Chinese are seeking to play a bigger role in the international system. And we should be open to China playing a more constructive role. And this would be an example of them stepping up, mm. contributing to peace in a contested region, the Middle East. Uh, nobody can say they're not interested in stability in the Middle East. And to the extent that the Chinese are helping to contribute to that, bringing the Iranians and the Saudis together, uh, that's a good thing. And mm. we should all be promoting that. Finally, New Zealand is undertaking a review of its defence policy at sure. the moment. We're expecting a draft to be released sometime in the next few months. You said that the number one priority for New Zealand when it comes to the Pacific should be stability. Sure. And obviously China plays into this in a significant yeah. way. In your opinion, should New Zealand be focusing more on security when it comes to our foreign policy in the Pacific? Definitely. Uh, obviously, security can be defined very broadly. But however you define security, and I favor a broad definition uh, that encompasses not just defense, but also social issues and so forth, environment, et cetera. Mm. If you look at security from that perspective, you know, we need to take the region a lot more seriously, okay? We need to meet their needs. Otherwise, you're gonna find that external actors are gonna come in and meet those needs. So for example, recently we just heard about the uh, Solomon Islands signing an agreement with China mm. to develop the, the port in uh, Honorea. Mm. This is the exact type of situation which seems to be low threat and so forth that we need to be stepping up our game to really kind of meeting a foreign policy need of a neighboring country in which we have a fundamental interest in. And in your opinion, does that mean we should be investing in more defense assets for the Pacific? Sure, that will be part of it, right? Fundamentally, we need to have a consultation with our partners, not just Solomon Islands, but the Pacific Islands Forum. Mm. Ask them what their requirements and needs are. If we don't do, do that and don't get into an extended discussion with them, we shouldn't be surprised if other countries come in and play a bigger role, right? So we really need to step our game. 21st century is turning out to be a lot tougher than many have predicted. And this is an example of it in our backyard. Well, I'm glad we have you <laughs> to help us pick through the detail. Thank you so much, yeah. Associate Thanks, Professor Nicholas Koo. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Komatu. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a Thanks for your feedback. Hey, te wiki. We will see you next Sunday. Ane. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.